have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it and turn with me for the last time to 2 Samuel, this time to chapter 23. And while we're doing that, I did want to extend our uh, condolences. I know many of you have heard Miss um, Sherry Wheat's father, Mr. Wingate, uh, passed away over the weekend. Um, uh, Mr. Wingate has had been a member here for a long time at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables and um, had recently come back, I think even just for the last three or four months, he and Miss Sherry were here um, quite often, and then, uh, but he went home to be with his Savior over the weekend. So um, I'll be seeing Miss Sherry soon, um, um, and uh, I know she's thankful for the, the memories he's had here and the time um, that even they got to have back right before his passing uh, here. With, so extend our condolences to him. Let's prepare to read 2 Samuel chapter 23, we'll read verses 1 through 7 this morning. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Uh, Father, we do uh, Lord, thank You for Your Word. We thank You uh, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask this morning that You would work by Your Word as, um, as You do to bring those who know You closer to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to bring those who have yet to know you into a saving relationship with him uh, through repentance and faith. Father, we, um, we trust and rely on your Spirit's power to work through the preaching of your word uh, to that very end. And we are thankful, Father, that those of us who are here and who know you have the testimony, uh, Lord, that our hearts and ears and eyes were opened to the truth of your word and we came to believe not in any merit or work of our own by the work of your spirit through the proclamation of your gospel. Father, we trust you to do the same this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I, I hope you'll, you'll kind of notice, um, if you have your Bible open, that though these are the last words of David, they're not the last words of Second Samuel, right? Second Samuel ends at chapter 25, and before you go flipping out and thinking, oh no, are we not done yet? We are done after this morning. Um, for those of you who are guests here, we've 
been around 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, for over uh, a year, probably close to even 16, 17 uh, months. Um, and, and at the end, what we've done is we've taken the epilogue uh, that begins in chapter 21 and ends in 25, and we looked at it through what we call a chiasm, which is a literary device that kind of helps us kind of focus in on what the true meaning of the, the, the passage is. And so the epilogue works that uh, the beginning of chapter 21 was parallel with the end of chapter 25, and then the middle of chapter 21 was parallel with a list of David's mighty men in chapter 24. And all that brings us uh, to David's song and David's last words, which together have this theme that's really the point of the epilogue. It is shouting out that the Lord is our salvation, the Lord is our deliverer. And so um, the center of that chiasm is the song and then these final words of David. We've taken a couple of weeks to look through this. And as we've unpacked this over the last several weeks, we've seen David declare the, the worthiness of the Lord. As our kids saying this morning, as the only one God is who is worthy of all trust and all allegiance David declared in his song his full dependence upon his Lord. He declared how the Lord defended him. He declared his own covenant fidelity. He declared the Lord's righteousness. He declared the Lord to be his strength. Indeed, the Lord is worthy of David's praise and of every other human who has ever existed's praise. And so now we come to these last words and we find David at the end of his life. But it's important at the outset to recognize that, that even though David's song and his last words, as we've said, they are parallel, they also depict David in two completely different states. Think about this. Remember, David's song was likely written uh, at some point during his exaltation in 2 Samuel 8, around that point. Remember, he had defeated all of his enemies, his enemies to the north, the south, the east, and the west. He was ruling as one with uh, justice and judgment, as it says in 2 Samuel 8. So David praises the Lord in that sense in his song for his deliverance and for the establishment of that kingdom. But but a lot's happened since 2 Samuel 8 in David's life, hasn't it? So, so here we're coming to David's final words. He's nearing the end of his days. He sees the sun setting. He knows the end is near. And these are his final words. Really the big idea of what we find in these words is the declaration that the righteous rule will bring renewal. It's kind of the big overarching idea we see in this text, these seven verses. The righteous rule will bring renewal. That's nice and alliterated for you true Baptists out there uh, this morning. Uh, this really does sit at the very heart of David's words. You can see that in verse 2 where he says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. What word is that, you ask? I'm glad you did, because he tells us in verse 3, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after Rain. See, what's happening here in David's last words is David's likely both looking backwards and forwards. 
backwards over what the Lord has done through his own reign as king over Israel, remembering at the end of 2 Samuel 8, the narrator reminded us that he ruled in justice and righteousness over the people of God, that his kingdom was, in a sense, in a, in a uh, physical, temporal, typological sense, it was like the morning dawn, the morning light dawning upon Israel. It was like the rain that brings grass, the grass, the growth of grass springing up out of the earth. But David's not just looking backwards here. He's looking forward. We'll see that very clearly in a moment. He's looking towards the one who will truly rule in justice. Whose rule will be fully and finally like the morning when the sun rises and there are no clouds in the sky. He's not simply recollecting what the Lord has done. He's remembering what the Lord has promised. There is a one. There is a righteous son who will be raised up by the Lord and his kingdom will be established forever. He will be like rain that brings the ultimate renewal that every single human heart longs for. Let's not take my word for it, though. Let's see it in the text. The, the righteous rule brings renewal. I'm actually going to work our way backwards this morning. So we're going to start in verses 6 and 7, taking the last part of David's words. And then we'll look at the first part of David's words. Because this struck out to me, maybe it did when you were reading as well, this sort of sharp contrast that takes place in verses 6 and 7. David says all these things of, of hope and promise and praise. But then look what he says in, in verse 6. He says, but the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Just at the outset, I need to say something, because it, it, it probably isn't obvious here to most of us. Uh, but, but this is, verses 6 and 7, yes, even the destruction of the son's rebellion, this is the hope of salvation. You realize that, right? Uh, David speaks here in terms that for many of us, what I just read, would be really super offensive. I mean, he, he just says that the sons of rebellion should be thrust away like thorns. In other words, in fact, what David's point here is in verses 6 and 7, and this is the first point of your notes, is this. He's saying that the unrighteous will be destroyed. That's, that's what he says. That's, you can't interpret that any other way. In verses 6 and 7, David is telling us the unrighteous will be destroyed. And, and the reality is, if that's offensive to you, I'm sorry, but, but David here is really simply declaring what the Bible says everywhere. Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the ungodly are, as Paul says, are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So David's own life, as described in his song in chapter 22, is, is foreshadowing, it's pointing forward to a greater victory that will be brought to bear by David's greater son. Remember, we saw this in David's song in chapter 22 quite a bit, didn't we? In David's song, David testifies to what the Lord has done. If, if you remember in verses 8 through 16... 
The Lord bowed the heavens and came down. And first he came down in fire, consuming David's enemies. And then in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 22, the Lord rescued David and threw away the thorns into an unquenchable fire. And then verses 43 and 46 of chapter 22, David's deliverance is described from his very own perspective as he's wrought victory by the strength of the Lord who was with him. All of that, all of that paints the exact same picture that David depicts in his last words. The sons of rebellion are all like thorns that are thrown away. That is their end. But the man who touches them, he says in verse 7, must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Remember, this is the hope of salvation, actually. Uh, There will be a final victory, and David's last words point to that. See, this is is what is so often referred to, what we refer to as a type. If you've heard that term tossed around, certainly if you've attended our GROW class on Old Testament survey, you've heard this term tossed around quite a bit. But if you've heard it and you're not quite sure what it means, please listen carefully. All it means is that there is, there is correspondence between these two things. These Old Testament things we're talking about, these doctrines, they point forward to a fuller, truer, greater reality that's to come in the new The one corresponds with the other. David's victory over his enemies, as depicted in 2 Samuel 22, it corresponds with Jesus' victory over his enemies in the fullness of time. Initiated through his life, death, and resurrection, continued now as all things are being subjected to him, and then finally consummated when he returns. There is similarity and analogy between those two things. However, as we always talk about with types, if there's a true type, however, there's going to be escalation from the old to the new. The the anti-type, what is being foreshadowed, it has to be greater and even different than the original or the type. So so think of of a picture of a menu, okay? Most of us probably will, are probably already thinking of pictures on the menu right now. Uh, But think of this, when when you go to a restaurant and you, you open up a menu... And you see a picture of that chimichanga that you want, right? You think, that's a good-looking chimichanga. So you order it. The waiter brings out the chimichanga. And you don't eat the picture on the menu. Right? Why would you? Because the picture is not the chimichanga. Nor is it the type, nor is the, type the anti-type. But it corresponds to it. It gives you a real picture. But surely, the real chimichanga is so much better than the picture. The Messiah, the righteous one, is better. He will remove thorns and thistles. He will, just as, the John, as John the Baptist warned, he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the sons of rebellion will be destroyed, and that's actually hope of salvation. In fact, I would argue very clearly from the text something that's pivotal here. Notice this. Notice that the destruction of the sons of rebellion, which is the ungodly, the unrighteous, it is directly connected to David's deliverance and salvation. It is. It's directly connected. The destruction of the sons of rebellion is directly connected. To David's deliverance and salvation. 
The way the author communicates this contrast is in several different ways. I don't even have time to point out all of them. I'll point out a couple. But even in this reference in verse 1, where David's being raised up. Did you you catch that? It says, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high. Uh, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Okay, that's pivotal. When it says David is the one raised up on high, there's this contrast between the end of the ungodly and the salvation and deliverance of David. David himself was raised on high. The sons of rebellion are laid low. They're consumed with fire. In fact, this is how the books of Samuel begin. It's so funny. My brother texted me this week and said, hey, you know what I never recognized? He said, I never recognized that that really Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 is pretty much all the themes of 1 and 2 Samuel. And I responded with, you haven't been listening to any of my sermons, have you? Uh, been, I've been going at this for like a year and a half, bro. Like I, I talk about Hannah's song pretty much every week, right? But it's, it's of course where the books begin. As you hear David's final words, they have correspondence with the song of Hannah at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. Remember who she is? Hannah is the the barren one and she cries out to the Lord. She receives a son, Samuel. And and her response to the Lord's provision is this song that really carries with it all of the themes we've examined in this last year and a half. And in that song she sings this. She says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 6, she says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. Do you see the correspondence there? The, the two are hand in hand. One happens with the other. Verse 8, she says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Her point is, the Lord does all of these things. He is the supreme sovereign. He is the king of all, not just of Israel, but the whole world. He is the one who brings down to Sheol and the one who raises up to new life. He's the only rock and the only God. I want us to see throughout redemptive history, which that term just refers to the story of the Bible, of God's plan to redeem for himself a people that began before time even began. I want us to see through redemptive history that the Lord is almost always bringing low as he's raising up. Like, think of the life of David, for instance. In order for David to be raised up, who was it that had to be brought low? Saul. That's right. The casting out, laying low of Saul, the two happened simultaneously. David's humble waiting upon the Lord to receive the kingdom for which he had already been given happens at the same time that Saul experiences the Lord's withdrawal, the Lord hiding his face from him and he is laid low. David, on the other hand, he waits patiently upon his Lord and in the end he's exalted and he receives the kingdom. And, more importantly, David is such a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. One who in the fullness of time left his throne in order to be clothed in our weakness, born in our humility, to take upon himself the position of a servant. 
to enter in and not simply take and grasp the kingdom, but to wait patiently upon his father until he had finished his entire mission. Which included, by the way, nothing less than taking upon himself and bearing the sins of God's people. And indeed, in the end, he was exalted, raised to newness and life, defeating our enemies. Jesus Christ is his name. And, and, and friends, if you're, if you're not familiar with that, really, there, there's nothing else that's going to be said this morning that is of more importance for you. As I've already stated, the scriptures make clear, don't shoot the messenger, but there is an end for all the ungodly. Yet, our God is so gracious and kind that he provides refuge even for the sons of rebellion. If you're offended by the idea of your own rebellion or worthlessness or ungodliness or unrighteousness or sinfulness, the fact that you are sitting here as a transgressor, if you're offended, good, just embrace it. Because I assure you that you are worse than you think. It is better to be offended now, but then laid low so that you might be exalted in Christ than to exalt yourself and be laid low on the day of judgment. When you will be cast out and thrown into unquenchable fire. So, before we move on, the the establishment of the kingdom of God, it requires the necessary removal or destruction of the wicked. Their destruction is essential to a righteous rule. The reign of God coincides with the end of the ungodly. And if the Lord's anointed does not, in other words, defeat his enemies, he will not be exalted. Hear it again in the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 10 through 12. Remember, this is, the, this is the covenant, this is the Davidic covenant made with David. The Lord says through the prophet Nathan, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies... Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you will rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. You know, it's really true to say that it's not a stretch to say that this is one way to tell the very story of the entire Bible. Right? Consider the whole Bible the whole Bible story through the idea of a kingdom lens. Remember what we talked about the kingdom of God is? It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. Good. Genesis 1.28 tells us, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The reason, by the way, I'm taking you all the way back to Genesis is because if you don't see the Bible as one unified story, you miss the fact that when God created, He created a kingdom. The first six days of creation are His kingdom-building campaign, and then He enters into His rest. Not that He needed a nap, by the way, but He ascended His throne and sat down because His work was complete. 
So, so Adam in the garden was invited into relationship with the Lord to be prince over all the earth to establish the benevolent kingdom of God, not just in the Garden of Eden. That was the uh, immediate location where the kingdom project began. But it was to fill the, the whole entire earth. And what happened? Adam failed to defend the garden. Instead, he let the usurper in. He committed, in other words, cosmic treason with cosmic consequences. That's where the story begins. And so we're presented with this problem at the outset of the Bible. The problem is the failure of a prophet, priest, and king that brings into creation the curse that binds everything under the consequence of sin. It's not a stretch to say that Adam became a son of rebellion in the sense that David uses it here when he failed to guard the garden sanctuary. But, but as we who know the biblical story remember, the Lord still remained king. Adam was, was not able to actually dethrone the Lord. No one can. And the fact of the matter is his kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. So then we have this promise, remember in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that there's going to be a seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent is always going to be at odds, at enmity with the seed of the woman. But one day there will come a day where, yes, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, speaking singularly of one to come who's going to deliver the world from this cosmic treason, him being Jesus Christ. And yet that one, he is going to crush the seed of the serpent. That's the promise that's recorded to us, and the rest of the Bible flows out of that promise. It's a promise in a form of a war between two seas, with the victory going to the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. And that's the story of the rest of the Bible. Genesis 4 actually very kicks off this story. It traces the seed of the serpent and Cain killing the seed of the woman in Abel. And we're to think, is this it? God's promise has failed. He just promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would prevail. Yet the Lord curses Cain and raises up a new seed, Seth. Genesis 5 traces that seed of the woman. Or consider just Exodus, by the way. Remember, which opens up in Egypt, the seed of the serpent, attacking the seed of the woman, the kingdom nation of Israel. Do you read your Bible, by the way, in those terms? Everything falls in line with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We were talking about in Sunday school today, weren't we? We were talking about how Herod killed John the Baptist, and all that was going through my mind was seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. Always trying to prevent this one from coming. Do you look at Exodus chapter 1, and you see Pharaoh ordering the drowning of all the male children of Israel as a direct attack on the seed of the woman? Why does that matter? Genesis 3.15, that's why it matters. God has always, listen, God has always from the very beginning had a plan. A cosmic kingdom over which he would through his anointed deliver his sons and daughters from their sin by him. That's all the Bible in a nutshell. Listen, we could actually open to Matthew chapter 2 and find the same story. You know what you find in Matthew chapter 2? A new Pharaoh attempting to put to death the new seed. Remember Herod? It's the same story. Why? 
Because the entire redemptive story is all about that seed coming to establish his kingdom. And there will be no rest in the land until it's established. Listen, the reason I'm going through this is so pivotal for our application. Because if you understand this, as you look at the world today, you will very clearly recognize that there is no man-made solution that will actually meet the world's problems short of the return of Christ. Like, you recognize that? I hope you do. Listen, I, I don't want that to discourage you. Right? Because it doesn't mean we just sit back and say, I'm going to do nothing until Christ returns. No, we should be all about laboring to overcome evil with good in all the various ways that God's children do that. Whether it's in our homes or our communities, places of work, as we vote, interact with our neighbors in all of these ways. We should be a people that are all about committing to overcoming evil with good. But we should also be a people who fully understand That our hope cannot be in establishing any government. Whether conserving the one we have or building a new one. The reality is it won't bring anything other than what the entire human race has experienced since the garden. (laughs) Like, do, do you hear me? I know November's coming up and we got a lot of hope. But friends, until Christ returns... We're still going to be at war. Our hope is Christ. Our hope is the kingdom that he is now establishing. And the kingdom that he will consummate when he returns. So says Jesus. You remember in in Matthew 13, the disciples asked him about why his ministry was so ineffective. They, They know Jesus as a man of God at this point. They don't... Uh, yet, have yet to, Peter's yet to proclaim him as the Messiah, and yet they don't understand why the leaders of Israel are rejecting him. So they ask Jesus, they ask him, and he responds to them in a series of parables about the kingdom. How the kingdom is actually going to advance in this world. And this is, this is what he says in Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43. He says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When is that going to happen? When he returns. Until then, you know what it's going to be? Weeds and wheat. Tares and wheat. In every place. In every time. It'll always be weeds and wheat. So, what do we do now? Very clear. We shine like a city on a hill in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. Yes, But we also recognize that we don't shine right now like we will. You see, don't don't miss this. The problem isn't simply out there, is it? It would be very easy for us to say that it is. The problem is in here. It's It's in here. It's in all of us. The problem is in you and in me. 
Like, let me ask you just flat out, moment of reflection, application. Uh, fathers, to what extent is the kingdom of God being made manifest in your fathering of your children right now? How, how well does your fathering your children represent Jesus' just rule? What about your mothering? What about all of us in your place of work? And your dealings with your neighbor when you're stuck in traffic? The destruction of the sons of rebellion is essential to the establishment to the righteous. Yes, hopefully I've made that point clear. But right now... We understand two things. One, yeah, we're called to shine like a city on a hill. And two, we ain't shining like we're supposed to be, but praise God we will (laughs) one day. Man, I hope you're ready for the return of Christ. If there's there's one thing that I pray that that the, the Page family's ministry hears about, and I know the Hartzell family feels the same, is that you long for the return of Christ. You recognize... This world ain't it. But oh, how precious is the day when we'll be with our Savior fully and finally. We won't have to mess with the sickness stuff anymore. Say goodbye to death. We will never lose a loved one again. We will have loved ones. And and by the way, we don't even love them perfectly now. But one day we're going to love them perfectly and we'll have those loved ones worshiping the true one who's worthy of all love forever together always praise be to God you long for it I hope you do and I hope our lives reflect that so hopefully okay that was like point number one I think I've only got like one one page left I promise I know that your outline you're looking at it and saying (laughs) um, but we're almost done we're done with the first part, the last two verses, and now we've got the first five. That's probably not optimistic for you to think that we're almost done, but it's true. Uh, look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 23. It says this, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed, the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. I had to cut a lot of this out this week. Uh, it's so pivotal important. This is, a, this is a whole sermon in itself, but I promised you I would be done. Uh, but we see here clearly, David is asserting... That he's not only a king, but a priest and prophet. That's significant. David is clearly asserting that he is not only a king, but he is a priest and prophet. And though that might not be really clear here, I would would point to him being referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel as an exercise of this office. David is also a priest. And he is one of the clearest pictures of the confluence of those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, that we find. And and I know that many of you probably aren't familiar with those offices, but they're important. They are established again in Genesis. Adam was the first priestly king who was also a prophet. Those offices originated in the Garden of Eden in conjunction with the role of Adam as the covenant head over the covenant of works. He was placed in the garden, was commanded to guard and keep it. His responsibility was purity keeping of the garden sanctuary. So therefore he was priest. He was also the first prophet. He received the word of God directly and was charged of performing his priestly duties in keeping with that very prophetic word. Adam was tasked with communicating the word of God to Eve. He was responsible to guard the sanctuary against lies which he failed to do. 
just as he failed to guard the purity as he let the serpent come in and treason occurred. Adam was a king, having received the divine command to exercise dominion over the whole earth. In fact, I, got, I don't ever do this, um, but this book, uh, if, if you've had trouble understanding things like biblical theology, uh, typology, uh, and the covenants particularly, this book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom by Samuel Renahan, um, is a tremendous help to you. It simplifies a lot of things we've been preaching on forever, so I'll recommend that as I'm about to quote him right now. Samuel Rinehan points out this. He says, Adam was to bring creation to consummation, being fruitful and filling the earth with a holy, God-honoring seed. He was to imitate God as a kingdom builder and attain the rest that awaits the completion of such a work. Adam's universal rule would be determined by his local rule. Adam's condition of obedience focused the universal to the local in Eden, and more specifically, into whether Adam would guard the purity of the garden sanctuary by upholding God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because if if you just read through your Old Testament, you, you might just lose sight of the fact that those offices were originally held by one man, one covenant head. But under the law, they were divided, weren't they? We know the king was actually not to do priestly work. The priest was not to rule over God's people. The king is not a prophet. The prophet's not a king. In fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet and king often go to war against each other, opposed against one another. And so we find these offices working in parallel, but divided. But under David, we find the offices are combined back together. He appears on the scene like an Adam or an Abraham or a Melchizedek. And that's significant because David's the clearest example of what Christ will be. We see in David's greater son the confluence of all three of those offices. Is Christ the priest? Yes, he's the true and better high priest who makes the perfect sacrifice of himself on behalf of his people. If you aren't familiar with that, read the book of Hebrews. Is Christ the anointed, the Messiah, not the true and better prophet? He is. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus and then they disappear and the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Is Jesus the King? You better believe it. He's the true and better king who defends and rules over his people. And in all of these ways, as we see David now at the end of his days, they're being brought forth as the prophet, priest, and king. We are still seeing a shadow, a type of the true and better. Let's wrap this up. The righteous one will bring renewal. That's our main idea. That's the last thing we'll look at here this morning. Really the heart of David's words, they come in verses 3 and 4. He says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. So so now David has experienced a shadow of that in the establishment of the kingdom, but it's pointing forward at the height of his kingdom when he was walking in the ways of the Lord, it's pointing forward Because we know David also experienced a great failure, didn't he? He experienced the inevitable end of what was given to him physically, typically. Even as he looked down and finds his hope in a dynasty, 
He looks past that, I assure you, and he's speaking here prophetically, pointing us directly to Christ, the truly righteous one. In fact, this is the nomenclature given to Christ in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, where it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Who is the Holy and Just One? Jesus. He's the only one who rules righteously and justly. So let's just bring this full circle. David declares that when the rule comes, it's going to be like the morning light. It'll be like the rain that brings forth grass. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to us Floridians. <laughs> because we enjoy all the modern amenities we have, particularly light. But think about this. I get up early in the morning and I need light. What do I do? Flip a switch. It's great. It brings light. I no longer have to light a candle to try and study in the morning. In former times, darkness was very foreboding. It presented all sorts of challenges that we no longer appreciate. But it's more than just light. It brings, as it says, the morning light. One pastor I was listening to this week, he was talking about this morning light. He mentioned as a child having a fever, which is often most intense, intense when? At night, right? Fever's rage at night. And he as a child remembers a time just laying there, anguishing with fever at night, longing for the mo- morning. He knew he would feel at least slightly better when the morning light came. And how precious were those first rays of light. It's not the harsh light that comes at noon that scorches, withers, and dries. It's the perfect and comforting light that comes at dawn. And so also the rain. I know particularly we probably don't appreciate that very well because we don't live in an arid climate. But if you've ever met someone who has and they come to Florida, they'll, they'll tell you how green everything is. Unless you've appreciated that arid climate, it's hard to understand just how beautiful, wonderful, and healing that vision of grass coming with the rain is. Jesus brings that. And church, we know that in part, but there's a day when we're going to know it in full. Listen, saints, right now, your pain and struggles are real. But hear me. They are intensified unnecessarily by a lack of acknowledging that these trials are temporary. By a lack of acknowledging that there is a day quickly coming when we will all know the joy and the full joy of our Father. There's a day quickly coming when He will dawn on this place in such a way that it experiences the full healing from all the consequences of the curse. Where everything sad will be made untrue. Long for that. And live into that now as we manifest in this world to whatever extent the Lord allows us by grace. Make manifest in this world the righteous rule of of Christ. Let's stand together as we close in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, you know far better than we how desperately we need the rule of Christ, our righteous King. 
not just to be saved from our sins, but we need His rule in our hearts. Would you help us as we gather around the King's table to remember His sacrifice, that we might live more faithfully in following Him, that we might love each other more fully, that we might seek more and more to build one another up with the gospel of Your Son. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.